Beloved, I would like to present you with the wisdom of children. Patrick, age 10, says, Never trust a dog to watch your food. Michael, age 14, once said, When your dad is mad and asks you, Do I look stupid? Don't answer him. Joel, age 10, says, Don't pick on your sister when she is holding a baseball bat. Andrew, age 9, has said, Puppies still have bad breath even after eating Altoid mints. <laughs> Tina, age 11, once said, When your mom is mad at your dad, don't let her brush your hair. Good advice. Adam, age 9, says, You can't hide a piece of broccoli in your milk. And Michael, age 14, once said, Never tell your mom her diet's not working. This here is the wisdom of children. However, today we'll focus and discuss the children of wisdom. So please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. We will conduct our study in chapter 7 and focus on verses 31 through 35. Our message this morning is titled, Children of Wisdom. This message today will focus on the ones who reject the truth found in John and Jesus' teachings, John the Baptist. These individuals have many criticisms about the style of John and Jesus, yet it is those who are wise, who see the truth that is being proclaimed by the forerunner and the Messiah and really pay attention to what they have to say. So this morning we will cover three main points, the generation, the criticisms, and the wise. Now, before we consider our text, I'd like to ask you all to please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are the one true God who is the maker of all things, all things seen and unseen. Thank you for your love, and thank you for your patience, and thank you for your mercy and grace that you just shower upon us. Watch over your saints as we gather together today on this Lord's Day to worship you, and guide our understanding of your word and open our minds and our ears to understand and embrace all the amazing truth that is contained within the scriptures. Show us how your ways are far better than our ways. And show us all the areas in our lives that we still need to address. Search us, Lord, and reveal those areas. And equip us, equip us with tools that we need, tools that we need to engage in these spiritual battles tools to help us do your will. Forgive us as we have forgiven others for the sins that they have committed against us. And we, may we never forget that the reason we are now in right standing with you has 100% to do with the fact of what Jesus did on the cross, your son. And it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. So let's take a look at our text today. Luke chapter 7, verse 31 to 35. And the text says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, 
a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So let's take a look at our first point, the generation. We're going to first hone in our studies on verses 31 and 32. So let's reread that together. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. First off, I'd like to share how the NLT renders verse 32, which is like this. They are like children playing a game in the public square. They complain to their friends. We played wedding songs and you didn't dance. So we played funeral songs and you did not weep. Now that helps, but what exactly does that mean? Who are the children that are playing these songs and who are the other children that are ignoring these songs? To answer those questions and others we may have, we need to first pause and define a few of our terms as usual. We need to consider the context and understand Jesus' authorial intent with the statement. What did he mean by this? What was his intention? For example, the term, this generation, it does not refer to everyone then living. That's not what this means. Instead, this term refers to the religious leaders and others who rejected both John the Baptist and Jesus and who were still the dominant force of that culture. That is who Jesus is talking about. And that is the reason that Jesus is doing this illustration. That's who he's directing it to. That's who this generation, that's who he's directing it to. So we can rightly conclude that the children in this tale that ignore the wedding songs and ignore the funeral songs, the children that won't dance and they won't mourn, regardless of what songs are being played, they are the religious elite of Jesus' day. And they are anyone else who refuses to respond to the songs being played from them. In fact, the phrase, like children, is meant by Christ to be a bold and strong rebuke to the Pharisees and scribes. Jesus was suggesting that the religious elite of his day were basically behaving childishly. They were spoiled children who at playtime would annoyingly and foolishly reject whatever pastime anyone may suggest. They were very stubborn and hard-headed. They just determined not to be pleased no matter what form the good news was being presented. For both, the styles of the songs that were being played were representing God's truth, but that did not matter. They did not want to hear that. So whether it was a joyful song like a wedding song or a mournful song like a funeral song, it did nothing to elicit a response. You see, beloved, the playing of the funeral, the playing of the flute was a reference to weddings as the flute was frequently played at the wedding dance. And the singing of a dirge involved taking part in the mourning associated with funerals. So that's what's being talked about. Wedding songs and funeral songs. So the religious elite refused to participate in God's unfolding kingdom, which involved both celebration and judgment. They were really two sides of the same coin. Yet, both were rejected. It didn't matter what kind of song was being played. In one case, they were invited to dance, which was a reference to Christ's joyous style of ministry, which included the acceptance of tax collectors and sinners. And this is like a celebration at a wedding, 
As Luke 15, 7 says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Yet, the Jewish religious establishment reproached Christ and they refused to dance. Additionally, they were invited to weep, which was a reference to John the Baptist's urgent call to repentance like the mourning at a funeral. As 2 Corinthians 7.9 says, as it says, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. See that? Grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief. I'm talking about a godly grief. So that you suffer no loss through us. Yet, John's pronouncement of judgment and wrath was ignored, and the Jewish religious establishment refused to weep. So in both cases, the religious elite ignored God's truth. Their hearts were cold to sinners that were repenting, and they refused to repent themselves of their very own sins that they had. Truly, we can conclude that to reject one song is to reject the other as well, for they truly go hand in hand. For example, if one truly is forgiven, and they're forgiven of their sins, and they've mourned their past wicked life, now they rejoice. They rejoice when they see others who come to that same truth, when they repent of their own shortcomings. If we've truly been forgiven, then we rejoice when others are also forgiven. So these go hand in hand, joy and mourning. Faith Life Study Bible puts it this way. In this illustration, children play song, play music and sing, but their friends do not play along. Jesus makes the point that the Jews rejected John's message of judgment expressed by not eating and drinking and Jesus' message of joy and hope expressed by eating and drinking because John and Jesus did not fit their expectations of Elijah and the Messiah. So take note of that. John and Jesus' ministry may have had some differences, but the message and the gospel they preached were the very same ones. So to reject one is to reject the other. And that's what we saw with the religious elite. They couldn't accept the message from either one of them. They rejected both these songs because John and Jesus did not meet their worldly expectations. They wanted a warrior messiah who was going to come and vanquish the Romans. And they wanted a forerunner who looked just like them. They wanted to see another earthly kingdom rise up. They wanted to see material blessings. Yet, because they were so focused on their expectations, they missed everything about what the Messiah would come to do spiritually, which was so significant. And how the Messiah it says it in the, script, in the Old Testament scriptures that he was called to be a suffering servant. But they ignored that part. New Testament scholar Robert H. Stein clarified that the form of presentation of the gospel was not just rejected, but it was the message that both John and Jesus pre, uh, presented that the Pharisees and scribes could not stomach. The rejection of the gospel message is not due to the form of its presentation. John preached the gospel while living an ascetic life. 
Jesus preached the gospel in the joy of the kingdom's arrival, but both were rejected. Neither satisfied the wishes of this generation because their message was the same. Both preached a message of repentance and both offered salvation to the outcasts. John understood the coming of God's kingdom as requiring repentance and portrayed this via his fasting. Jesus saw the coming of God's kingdom as a time of great celebration and portrayed, portrayed, portrayed this by the analogy of a wedding feast. Both are valid expressions of different aspects of God's kingdom, and if either is totally ignored, an unbalanced portrayal will result. Despite its different appearance, the message of Jesus and John was the same. It was not, therefore, the form of the message that caused its rejection, but rather its content. The message was rejected because it demanded repentance. For the Pharisees and law experts, such a message was received with hostility. Others might need to repent, but they were confident in their own righteousness. But for those who knew that they were sinners and needed to repent, for the tax collectors and the sinners, the good news of John and Jesus offered hope and forgiveness, and it was gladly appreciated, gladly accepted. They saw the ministries of Jesus and John as evidence of the arrival of the messianic age. Thus, once again, we see the great reversal. The ones that we would expect to listen to the message rejected it, and the outcast were the ones who actually accepted it. Next, Jesus digs deeper into the specific accusations that were made against him and his forerunner. And this takes us to our second point, the criticisms. So let's focus in on verses 33 and 34. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So the criticism here of John and Jesus can be summed up as saying that John is considered a fanatic and has a demon for his abstinence of food and alcohol. And Jesus is called a glutton and a drunkard as he associated with tax collectors and sinners. It clearly did not matter what Jesus or John did. Either way, either approach, the ones who would reject them would find any reason to reject them because of the content of their message. As we covered last week, Jesus said regarding John the Baptist that among those born of women, none is greater than John. And we know that Jesus lived a completely perfect and sinless life. But despite this, it did not matter to the enemies who were, it did not matter to those who were enemies of the truth. Beloved, if people can find fault with John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, what do you think that they're going to do about us? What are they going to do about you and me? especially if we are standing on the truth of the word of God. The more you declare God's truth, the greater criticism you will receive. And this hostility will keep increasing in our world more and more and more. Just look at the times of how they're changing. They're becoming far more hostile to God's truth. Often, we receive that hostility by those who claim to follow Jesus themselves. Remember, the Pharisees and the scribes claimed to follow God. They claimed to speak for God. 
But Jesus said this in John 8:44 to the religious elite. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and a father of lies. So do not be surprised by what you are accused of. To declare God's truth truly has a cost. But we have no other choice as the followers of the Lord, than to declare his truth. For the message we declare is a life-saving truth. It's about eternal life. It's important. And we have to remember that we now, who have accepted this truth, heard that truth from others, others who had to sacrifice to declare that truth. That Bible that you hold in your hand, people died so you could have that Bible in your hand. The people who are preaching the truth and teaching the truth, they were persecuted for that. So we have to understand that we will experience these same things, but it is worth it. It's a life-saving message, and we follow the footstep of our master when we do this. So let us look at some of those complaints that were raised up. Let us take a look at what it says in Matthew 9, verse 10 through 11. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Additionally, consider what it says in Luke 19, 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone into be a guest of a man who is a sinner. So here we see our Lord and Savior ministering to lost sinners. That's what we're supposed to do. Yet the Pharisees ignore this. All they can see is Jesus sharing a table with those who are sinners. And the ironic thing about it is that the Pharisees themselves are sinners too. But they don't see their own sin. They're so quick to point to sin out in others. They are blind to their own sins. They are arrogant and prideful. And we know that the Lord does not accept that type of attitude. In fact, he completely opposes that type of attitude. Just look at what it says in James 4, 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We cannot approach God with arrogance. He gives mercy and grace to the humble. We are always called to live a life of humility, to inwardly look at the places we have fallen short and confess our sins and be loving to others. Furthermore, they did not just call John the Baptist a demon. They also said the very same thing about our Lord and Savior. As John 10 verse 19 to 21 says, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So there was a division even when Jesus' words. Some people could clearly see the acts that he was doing was clearly showing that he was a prophet and even more than a prophet. But others, they ignored that claiming that he was possessed by a demon. And it was not just the people who accused Jesus of being a sinner and demon-possessed. The sad thing is, 
even his own family. The very people that he grew up with. The very people that he spent most of his life with. People who had seen him being sinless. They couldn't hold any sin against him. They saw this, yet they thought that he was insane. They thought that he was crazy. As Mark 3.21 says, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Instead of being worshipped as God in the flesh, here's God coming from heaven, coming down to us. His own family is ashamed of him, believing him to be crazy. His own chosen people that he has loved so much and been so patient with, they rejected him and said that he was filled with a demon. How sad and awful. But Jesus had a word for his critics. He had a word to those who opposed him and he boldly declared it in John 5, verse 37 to 47. And the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, you will. how will you believe my words? The Pharisees and the scribes were so focused on their own human traditions They would claim that Moses came up with these traditions for them that they were focusing on. They missed the whole point. The Old Testament was pointing to Christ and they missed it. John and Jesus, although they had some differences, they were proclaiming God's truth. And many people that we would expect to get it missed it. John only ate locusts and honey and lived in the wilderness yet he was accused of having a demon. Jesus served the people and met them at their levels, yet he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. The style of Jesus and John was different in some ways, but both preached the same truth and they preached it with boldness. But the arrogant could not accept it, for they wanted a message to boast their egos and to benefit their material blessings. That's where their heart was at. As MacArthur New Testament commentary on Luke says, in the end, it is not the style of ministry that matters, but its substance. The people ultimately rejected the ministries of both John and Jesus. Though their emphasis may have differed, both John and Jesus called for repentance, promised forgiveness, warned of judgment, and proclaimed the coming of the kingdom. The outward form of ministry is never the issue, but rather the truth of the message. 
In every generation, there will be spiritual brats who reject the truth, like those who refuse to mourn with John or laugh with Jesus. The Lord's masterful illustration reveals that there are two kinds of spiritual children in every generation, folly's brats and wisdom's children. The brats are fools devoid of true wisdom and marked by a hatred of the truth and a rejection of those who proclaim it. On the other hand, wisdom's children, the redeemed, are known by the righteous deeds. Their, their righteous deeds, they're transformed like the wisdom's children, the redeemed, are known by the righteous deeds their transformed lives produce. So at this time, it is the children of wisdom that we bring our attention to next. And this takes us to our third and final point, the wise. Verse 35 says, Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Again, I really like how the NLT renders verse 35, because again, it's a thought-for-thought thought translation, so I like how it says it. But wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. In other words, true wisdom is vindicated by what it produces in the lives of those who follow it. So now, this was a proverbial saying that was found in the first century. And essentially, it means that a teaching is shown to be wise based on what it produces. So this should bring to mind passages of scripture that we recently just covered, like in Luke 6.44, which says, For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. True wisdom is seen in the lives of the faithful servants of the Lord. And true believers produce very real fruit that gives proof that the Christian life is a life of wisdom. For we follow God who is the author of wisdom. So it should be seen when people look at the way we live our lives, they'll see and notice that we are wise. Not because of our own minds, but we're following the instructions that God has given us. We're following the leading of the Holy Spirit that's within us. And wisdom comes about. So the phrase, her children, should be understood to be about the followers of John the Baptist and Jesus. Therefore, we can rightly conclude that what Jesus is saying is that his and John's accomplishments ultimately will confirm God's wisdom in sending them to fulfill his plan for salvation. Biblical scholar James R. Edwards puts it this way, despite the critical mass that rejects Jesus as it earlier rejected his forerunner, John the baptizer, followers of Jesus are living witnesses to the wisdom of God in the same way that fruit is a living witness to the nature of the tree that bears it. Let us not ever forget this most cherished truth that is found in scripture in Proverbs 1 verse 7, which says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. John and Jesus taught and preached God's truth. And as we discussed, this meant that it included the instruction to repent. Yet a foolish individual will not tolerate that. They don't want to hear that. They will despise this wisdom and seek their own glory and seek another way. But as we've seen the wise, the ones who are called the children who are wise, the wise know that the beginning of all truth, of all life-saving truth is found in the fear of the Lord, the reverence for the Lord. So this is something now we have to all ask ourselves. Do we have wisdom, godly wisdom, 
Or is that something that's lacking in our lives? Well, here's the good thing. Even if you're lacking godly wisdom, it is not a hopeless situation. The only thing that we need to do is cry out to God with a genuine and true heart for wisdom. As James 1, 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So just ask. That's what scripture says. Just ask. It's that simple. It doesn't have to be complicated. It's that simple. Just ask. All one has to do is ask for wisdom, and God will give it if that request is coming from a true and sincere heart. All one has to do is forsake the wisdom of men. All one has to do is abandon the wisdom of the world. And instead, one must put their whole trust in God's wisdom, doing things God's way. And I can guarantee you, based on the authority of the word of God, you will not be disappointed. Romans 12, 2 wisely says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The less entangled we are with the world's priorities, the better we will be at at discerning God's will. That, that is true wisdom. So as this message comes to a close, I would like to share this that I came across in my study this week. Former Southern Baptist Convention President Adrian Rogers once said this quote, It is better to be divided by truth than to be united by error. It is better to speak the truth that hurts and then heals than to speak falsehood that comforts and then kills. It is not love and it is not friendship if we fail to declare the whole counsel of God. It is better to be hated for telling the truth than to be loved for telling a lie. It is better to stand alone with the truth than to be wrong with the multitude. Truly here, this is great wisdom. Wisdom that is based on what we're seeing in our passage today. The reality is that to be in the group, the children of wisdom, we need to stand, firmly stand on God's truth. And that means that we're never going to be able to please all people, especially in this world today, so hostile to God's truth. In fact, just like John the Baptist and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, regardless of our style, regardless of the differences that they had, we too will be hated we too will be falsely accused. We too will be slandered. But here's the hope. It is not in vain. There's not a single thing that happens to you when people are accusing you and doing these things for standing on God's word that is done in vain. It is not done in vain. And that's why we recently just covered this and why Jesus is talking about this now. As he said in Luke 6, verse 23, blessed are you, when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. I love that. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. We know that this is a pattern we've seen all throughout the Old Testament. We've seen it in Jesus' day. 
We've seen it in church history. We see it in our day now. And as we get closer and closer to the end times, it's going to get even worse and worse and worse and worse. There is a hostility to God's truth. When we stand on it, people will say many different things about us, but we have to stand firm, preaching the whole counsel of the word of God, because in the word of God is a life-saving message that people desperately need to hear. So we must be courageous and bold and realize that just like others sacrificed to share the truth with us, just like we have benefited from that, we must do the same. Again, this Bible was paid for in blood. People died so we could have a chance to read the scriptures in a language that we could even understand. They died for that, for a reason, so we could share that hope with a world, a world that is very confused right now. That responsibility falls on us. God could do it himself. He could rise up rocks that could preach for him and teach for him. But in his perfect plan, he has chosen to use his followers. So go out there and be bold and share God's life-saving truth with others. To God be all the glory. Amen.